welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. It's been very strange, surreal perhaps, preparing for today's conversation. My guest and I have been friends for, I think, about 11 years now. I can tell you so many things about her. And yet, I don't really know her at all. Such is the reality of being Facebook friends. And yes, I just used air quotes. When <laughs> I sent Jacqueline a friend request all those years ago, she caught my attention with her self-appropriated title of goddess. I think every woman should be goddess of her own life. And I loved the way she proclaimed it to the world. Now, you know what Facebook is like. Some people are allowed into your feed. Some are not. Some are hit and miss. Jacqueline is somewhere between allowed and hit and miss, which I kind of like because whenever she appears, it's like a breath of fresh air with (laughs) fasolity, which I kind of like. I can say that word, Uh, which I kind of like because when she appears, it's like a breath of fresh air with philosophy attached. I imagine her theater bio reads, this leading lady has absorbed much from the theater in the round that is life knowing there are no wings or curtains to hide amongst. She lives that life as it is meant to be lived, with style, with grace, with panache, with moxie, and with humor, sharing her wisdom, adoring her co-stars, and not taking herself too seriously. Jacqueline is always real, like admitting to the panic over a sudden new mole. Oh, wait, it's only chocolate. She's always real, sharing advice about funks, and farts. I really appreciated the way she compared personal change to repotting a plant. She said, you will find yourself needing to take a little time to get used to your new bigness, this expanded version of you. Growth is not always an upward, outward energy. In some seasons, it's a deepening, grounding, stabilizing experience. She always shares her philosophy in a way that allows you to see yourself in it. Or to see it as Jacqueline, who I am not, and that's okay. With that wisdom, it's my great pleasure to welcome Jacqueline Gates, aka the goddess known as Jackie, aka the leading lady of her own damn life. Jacqueline Gates, thank you for joining me on Two Boomer Women today. Oh, I am so thrilled, and I'm sitting here just like, oh, that's the best introduction ever. <laughs> so good. I'm so glad we get to record it, because your wordsmithing is amazing, and I just, I just love that reflection. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's funny, even following you for all these years and having you appear in my feed for all these years, 
I, I felt a bit like a lurker as I'm going back trying to find the, the, the nuggets that you have shared. And it's like, oh my goodness, if somebody can see me, scroll, scroll, scroll. <laughs> I don't mind the lurker. Lurkers are good. <laughs> Not everybody. And here's, here's thing number one, leading ladies don't always have to be center stage. They can lead from wherever they decide. There we go. And you get to and you get to look for as long as you feel like looking because <laughs> why not? There you go. If it's okay, can we start with the early days? Oh, I would love that. Because you you grew up in South Africa, I think. Yes, I was born um to English parents in Nigeria. And when um England got thrown out, we got thrown out with them, you know, which was right and proper and uh and then we went to South Africa, which at the time was also, well, it, it was newly not a colony, but it was still very, my father was working with, um, with businesses attached to the, to the British office. So, and so, but I was raised in South Africa. I was there from the time I was uh, four until we left for the States. Um, I was 35. So yeah, 30, 30 years. And you went on the stage, I believe. I was on stage. <laughs> I um, I was. I spent twenty five years on stage. I started off when I was a small person because my mother got tired of all the pirouetting and and concerts. You know those kitchen concerts, like "Mommy, watch this," and she's in the middle, always in the middle of something. So I was on stage. I had my first leading role when I was eleven, and I just never looked back. I just kept doing it, and. I tried to give up in inverted commas um, when I got married. I got married straight out of school to my first boyfriend. We're hitting our 40th wedding anniversary this year. It's amazing. I'm five. I was five for anybody who's doing the math about how old I am. Um, <laughs> it, it, and so I tried to give up and because my husband at the time was a musician but not attached to the theater at all. And I just simply couldn't. My whole... Uh, the, the thing that lets me be me was on stage. Um, and I know there are artists out there who pack away their paintbrushes or their crayons or the people who stop writing that book or the people who stop gardening or whatever. We go through seasons where we have to, well, well maybe it's, it's sensible to put our, the things that give us the most delight on the back burner but if we leave them there for too long we stifle ourselves we we wither and I was withering and so about two years into my marriage I was sitting at my desk at the realtor office the real estate office that I was working for and I saw an audition notice for the sound of music and they were auditioning children and I thought I could be a children. <laughs> I was 22 at the time. And I thought, I can sing Liesl. So I got home. I went home. I took all my work makeup off and everything, put my hair into pigtails, went off to the audition. When they asked for my age, I put not applicable because they're auditioning kids, right? And so they, I just asked for the age, not applicable. And I went and I sang and I got the part of Liesl, 16 going on 17 at the age of 22. And so that lesson said, age is not applicable. If you can do what you want to do, do it. And so that was the first thing I thought of when you sent me the invitation to be here. It's just like, oh, my God, age is not applicable. 
So yes, this is this was my my first thing. And then we, you know, fast forward a whole lot of years. We came over here during the whole Y2K hoopla in 1998 because my husband is a computer wizard. And we sold up a four-bedroomed house down to eight suitcases. We knew one person on the continent, um, which was the person that had given my husband the job. And we arrived in Miami May on Mother's Day, May 1998. And I remember distinctly the very fabulous man at the luggage thing. I, he said, where are you going? And I went, Minneapolis. And he said, on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> Which was our first taste of Minnesota weather. But yes, we ended up um, in Minneapolis and we've been back and forth around the, around the country. But we are back in Minneapolis now because this is where now we have grandbabies. And yeah. But we met shortly into my into the second phase of my American adventure, which was after we we got our green cards and all the rest of it, and I was allowed to work and I started doing network marketing. And that's I think when we met. Okay. I didn't I don't remember being aware of network marketing until I saw your old video the other day that you posted. Oh wow, yes. Um but yeah, I, I, I've noticed that you move a lot, which is, that's fine. I mean, and who knows why, but. I move because I love moving. I love being in new environments. And I love, I love the reinvention that comes with a change of place. We won't talk about the fact that in the last four years, I've moved about that many times. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's such a, um, it's such an antithesis to how our parents grew up, um, you know, where, you, you know, you bought a house and you stayed put, you, you retired there. And that feels so, on the one hand, I'm going to always probably be close to where my grandkids are. But on the other hand, there's so much world to see, and I just want to go and explore it. And the best way to explore it is to live there for a bit. So that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice thing about being online and the podcast and everything else is, of course, I'm collecting friends like all over the place. So good. So, and you and can work from anywhere. Give me a Wi-Fi and I can work. As long as it's south of here. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, I mentioned in the intro how you share your observations, which are often so philosophical. Now, many of them are framed in the theater. And your analogies will be about things theatrical. Mm -hmm. I've seen your Facebook posts and it resonates with so many people. Why do you think that is? I think because theater is life. You know, that's even Shakespeare. Shakespeare was the reality shows of the time, right? I mean, now we look at them as we think, oh, that's, yes, classic, but it's kind of not us, but it is us. Humans are humans. And theater is about humanity. And so, but the way I've transcribed it, uh, translated it, I think, is in the creation of a role. As an actor, when you create a role, you are becoming someone else. And the better you can become, the better you can drop into and immerse yourself in being that person, the better an actor you will be. And I, and I use this analogy often. It's the difference between Dustin Hoffman, who will disappear into Tootsie or disappear into Rain Man or disappear into Hook, right? And then you've got Matthew Perry, who is always Matthew Perry. It doesn't matter what show he does. He's always Matthew Perry. 
And so well, Chandler Bing, which are, <laughs> they are one and the same. So this is the difference between an immersion actor and, and somebody who's just playing a role. So when I decided to, when it started mostly, well, because I was still on stage in South Africa, when we got here, the very first place we went to was a highly expensive, I now know, mall in Edina in Minneapolis, uh, in Minnesota. And I walked around and I decided I was going to be the kind of person who shopped here. That was going to be my American journey. And so immediately, because of all my training, my, my, my mindset goes, well, how do you be that? Well, you, you, you have a role, you create a role, and the role includes maybe new words, maybe new ways of being, new ways of dressing, new set design, which is my way of saying your house, right? Which was very fortunate because we arrived, as I said, with eight suitcases, and at the time, I spoke very properly because my South African accent meant I wasn't understood a lot. <laughs> so, and I've always sounded English. I just went sort of full on Mary Poppins mode. But that also helped me shake off because part of the the thing with when you want to become a different version of you. And so, so say there's a there's a version of you that's a published author or a version of you that has this corporate promotion that you want. You can look at it as a role. And so that's what I did. I looked at it as a role, like that version of me, what do I have to do? And so I take all my theater lessons, the conversations that clothes have between us and the world. Your, your clothes are not just what you say to the world, they, they're what you say to you too. So, you know, when you wear that those that that t-shirt that doesn't make you feel fabulous well in that moment you're deciding not to feel fabulous you're deciding not to be the fabulous version of you right um and then there's clothes in the wardrobe that do make you feel fabulous but you you save them for a, 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 a fabulous occasion well what you're saying then is i don't have a fabulous occasion every day well you can right so there's all these these nuances about theater that translates so beautifully into this becoming the most human, brilliant person thing that you can be, right? And so that's what I do. I just keep translating them. And I'll, I'll hold up a mirror and I say, can you see how you're playing a resume role? Can you see how you're being, how you've always been? But you want to do something different, so you need to be something. And then, of course, it ties into the phrase of act as if, and I could go on forever about that. Acting is not pretending. Acting is finding a real piece of truth within you and making it visible. So this is what we do. And yeah, it, 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 it was so funny because I didn't talk about my acting for the first two or three years of my entrepreneurial journey because somebody right at the very beginning said, oh, nobody's going to trust you because they'll think you're acting. They'll think, it's, they'll think you're fake. So I didn't mention any of it. It's like, you know, I would say I would show up on a call or something and somebody would say, oh, you know, that, that you're very whatever. And I'd mention I'm an actress and they'd say, oh, well, that explains it. Right. <laughs> and so I didn't mention it. But the minute I started talking about these analogies and the way my brain 
puts theater into real life and translates those skills into real life so that people can be and do and have what they want by becoming that version of them, then all of a sudden it just works. And I, and it's, you know, it's just been so magical to be able to be in my element, which is theater and letting it be as this huge permission slip for people to be just the most themselves that they want to. And I think so many people become who other people want them to be. Mm. And, and if you do that long enough, correct me if I'm wrong, but you forget who you are. That's absolutely true. And it's very sad. And I also do think that there are seasons where that is appropriate, right? Firstly, in the first 14 years of our lives, we are sponges. We will take on without any filtering or editing whatever we are surrounded by. And for the folk who have unhelpful surroundings, there's a lot of deconditioning to do. There's a lot of unlearning to do. And that usually happens, you know, sometime between 15 and 30. You know, that's what all the midlife crisis and things about. That's why going, I am not this life that I'm leading. This is not me. That's what they're saying. And then if you're lucky and if you're, if that is how your journey unfolds, you get to, uncondition yourself you you take the layers off that were put on you through schooling or unhelpful parenting or traumatic events or whatever it is you get to undo some of that and find out who you actually are underneath and that's as much of a role creation as anything else that's why I don't talk a lot about your future self because for a lot of people who have to do deconditioning the future is like way over there. So you just want to know who your next self, this one layer, you know, if you, if you, if you started dressing up a bit every day to make yourself feel better, how would that change the trajectory of your life? How would that make your morning feel different? How would that have you show up differently at work? Those kind of things. We go layer by layer by layer. And hopefully by the time you get to your, your, they call it crone age, but it's just like your, your maturity. You are now so thoroughly, again, you, that you can, you can have this whole third act, which is just delicious. And you get to be a permission slip for people to not take on as much conditioning in their youth or not condition the young as much so that we don't have to keep doing this. We can actually just all be more ourselves and move humanity forward that way. And I'll vouch for everything you just said, because knowing I was going to talk to you today, I went and I took out the earrings that I'd put in, and I put in something that's sort of, it's got a deep red, it looks like a rock, it's got a little bit of bling attached. And I was walking around the house with a big smile on my face. <laughs> something, something as simple as earrings. And yeah, it just, yeah. And, and why do we not do that? Like every day. Mm-hmm. there's that poem um when i'm old i will wear purple and a red hat that doesn't match right and i can't for the room, life of me remember but that's the first line if you want to google it it's a fabulous poem and i remember when i was about 13 or 14 i started doing needlework um counted cross stitch and it was it turned into a huge passion of mine until my first baby arrived and for my mum's 50th, I think it was, I did a counted cross stitch of that whole poem on a sampler, right? And I remember the word so clearly. And I remember thinking, that won't be me. 
I am not going to wait till I'm old to wear the purple and the hat that doesn't match and whatever. And you know what? I still did it. I still, even in my theatrical way, I still smothered a lot of myself. I still covered up and and complied because actually in a lot of ways, I firstly, I was very busy when you have kids and, you know, a, a, a a full, full-time career or whatever it is, your days are busy. You know, there's very few of us that have truly spacious days unless we decide to make them so. But I lost track, shall we say. Not that it was deliberately smothered, but I lost touch of that. And when I turned 50, it was like, oh, okay, now we're done. Now we're, now we're going to off, we're going to just be the most and that's been my journey. And, you know, I turned 60 next year and it's been quite the decade. And I've got at least four more. I've decided I want to live till I'm 100. Well, there's no reason you shouldn't. There's scientific evidence to say we're all getting older. So we're living longer. Yeah. Every time I invite somebody on, I still call us midlife because, I mean, my next big one is 70. Yeah. And, you know, I still call it midlife. It's just like. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, if you're going to live to 100, 50 is only middle age. Well, my line is I'm going to live forever. And well, so far, so good. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> and I always tell you in the theater, the third act is the most dramatic. The third act is the best part because, you know, you have you set the stage. Here we go. You set the stage and you tell the beginning of the story in the first act and then there's a plot twist in the second act. And then, you know, you go off and get a drink or something during intermission and you recover and then you come back and the third act is just spectacular. So this is us in our third act. Love it. I'm going to bring that cocktail back to the seat with me then. (laughs) Yes, yes. In my day, you couldn't drink or eat in the theater. It just wasn't done. In fact, it wasn't allowed. All the cocktails and all stuff had to happen in the foyer or in the bar. And and also, of course, they weren't plastic cups. You had to, it was real glass and stuff. So the chances of you dropping something was uh, quite high. But no, you didn't have that. And there were no chip packets and that kind of sound. I'm so glad. (laughs) I still refuse to drink out of plastic cups when it's a Oh, thank you. We are so twins. I don't do that either. (laughs) I I just, I don't. It's like somebody offers me something. No, no. Why would somebody spend a long time and a huge amount of skill to make that wine or that champagne? I will not drink it out of plastic. I also don't drink my coffees out of to-go cups unless I absolutely am going somewhere. I will always ask for a, a, a cup and saucer. I, um, I will admit to having a, a whole set of lovely colored plastic wine glasses. And the grandchildren love drinking out of them in the backyard. There you go. And the backyard is the place for them. I mean, that's <laughs> right. Yes, you know, but. Well, but uh, I yeah. won't. I, I still, <laughs> no, it's the, for the adults. It's still, sorry, still glass. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you're going to have adult juice, you have adult glasses. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So some of your statements, as I was lurking, really resonated with me. And I want to share a couple of them with our listeners. And I'm going to ask you to unpack them for us. Sure. Okay. Number one, any before picture is never, ever a less than. It's simply a before. Yes, because we buy into this, the 
advertising mindset that you need fixing, right? So they will tell you that who you are now is not good enough. So therefore you need to do all these other things, right? And so what happens when we make some kind of shift in our lives that is towards how we would rather experience things? And I I phrase this carefully because I don't think better is like we're not we're not looking better. We're not, we could be feeling better, but there is this, there is this idea that who we were wasn't cutting it. It's like that version of you just didn't do, you know, wasn't doing life properly or was, was too fat, too, um, drank too much, didn't make enough money. Well, well there's always these, these, this belittling of who we were. And then what we're doing is shaming past versions of ourselves. I have a picture of myself from 2018. I have my not even one-year-old grandbaby on my lap. He had been there for three hours because he was teething. He'd finally gone to sleep. And I'd picked up my Kindle and accidentally took a selfie. I look 100 years old. I I, uh, am... all my gray is showing. I've got no makeup on. I am exhausted and you can see it, right? And I kept that picture because when I saw the Kindle took it and I, I looked at it and I went, oh my God, is that how I appear now? Is it? And then I just knew that's not me. And slowly but surely I started becoming more me again, right? So I had, I had lost track because of the season I, in life I was. When I show that picture, people almost always go, what a before, right? As though that version of me wasn't just, wasn't cutting it. But that version of me is what became who I am now. I couldn't be who I am now without her. I couldn't, she made the decision. She did the work. She chose to change. And that is hugely admirable. And so you know, for the longest time, I, I would feel ashamed. And I hid that picture for a very long time. And then when I did show it the first time, it was like, oh, my God, look how fabulous I am now, right? And actually, no, I was fabulous then. I was just in a season where it didn't show. I think, too, now hearing that, I, I know which picture you're talking about, I believe. But hearing the full story is that's exactly who you were in the moment. When right. your grandbaby is crying over teething, you're not going to say, oh, wait a minute, honey, I need to put the makeup on and I just need to get my eyelashes and the lipstick. You're going to go like right now yeah. and cuddle and you're exhausted, if only emotionally, because you can't help this poor little thing. Mm-hmm. So you're cuddling. That just everything comes together that yeah, you didn't look yeah. like you look today. But in that and moment, now, it wasn't I, about you. No, but I will say that from that day, I started putting my makeup on because makeup is part of who I am. I'm a showgirl at heart. I started putting my makeup on before he arrived. And I know I have the luxury because I could still get a full night's <laughs> sleep. He's my grandson, not my son. But, you know, I got a moment to put the lipstick on. I did get a box of dye and I did my hair. And I started dressing in ways that made me feel that was still comfortable and could be hurled on because, you know, toddlers. But I, 
but it was it was a case of I did start dressing up a little bit more each day. I didn't succumb to my situation as much as I had before. So yes, so that shift is I. My mantra for all my clients and all my nesting people and everybody I meet is if you'll do what you can with what you have available that scoots you closer to what you want, the progress will blow your mind. I'm going to interrupt you right there because sure. number three of the quote, I'm going to just, I'll come back to, <laughs> back to number two, all these hand signals. Um, what I have in my notes, and everybody knows I have notes, our listeners can't see you, but you are immaculately, glamorously turned out. If I wasn't as aware of you, the person, as I am, that might intimidate me a bit. Suggests to me that we are so not alike. But you recently shared some comments you received, and I love the way you clarified your message. And I'm going to quote you here. Emerging as more me involved going back to my showgirl roots and amping up the glam, which through certain lenses looks like laying an on the artifice, which it is, except that it's not artifice for me. For me, it's as natural as breathing. And I think that's what you've just said there. You mm-hmm. know that, but I, I reminded that all my assumptions about anything, you, the world, anything, are my own biases. Uh, They're my own perceptions and not indicative of reality. Now, we all have a story. I have now just heard yours, you know, but until that, any perceptions I may have had, those are my problem, not yours. It is. We there's that quote again. I, I'm I'm awful at giving attributions for quotes, mostly because I just don't remember the name. But they he said, "You we don't see things as they are; we see them as we are." Right, and so this is this is the mirroring that we get to do to see who to see who we are in reflection and there was somebody else in that same thread that mentioned that her transformation had gone the opposite way. She'd gone full on from full on corporate, all glammed up all the suits and the nails and the heels and everything basically down to long hair, fresh faced uh, or rather just unstyled hair, fresh faced jeans and t-shirts. And she was happy as a clam. It's exactly the same thing. You're bringing out the most you. And when you bring something out, you have to let something go. You have to, you have to do this. So it takes the same kind of courage for me to be the most overdressed person <laughs> in my coffee shop as it does for somebody like Alicia Keys to show up on stage with no makeup at all. It's not about the judgment of whether something is right or wrong. There isn't that. It's a case of, does it feel like you? And, you know, when I put my lashes on and my lipstick and all the rest of it's like, there I am. And when I don't, I know there's something missing. I can feel it. So there's, there's a lot of people who live, for example, in different times. There's a gentleman called Pinzent, P-I-N-S-E-N-T. 
he wears only Edwardian men's garb on Instagram. He's incredible. And he has chosen to live in Edwardian times because it's the most him. Dita Van Tees, the burlesque star, is the same. She lives in the 1940s and 50s because it is the most her. People go, oh, you know, it's, it's, it, you're, you're living a different character. She said, no, this is me. And so we have to find out who that is. And we do it, interestingly, by seeing the reflections of others. So when I work with clients, I will always say to them, notice the thing that you go, oh, I would love that. But also notice the thing is like, I would never do that. And most people who say, I don't do the glam, I don't do the lipstick, I don't do that. I would ask them, what do you think it would say about you if you did? Why? Why? What is it that, why is that stance part of your identity? What is that? And somebody will say, I just don't have time. But there's always the yearning underneath. Or they'll say, oh, I just don't have time. And they're much more busy. They're busy doing other things that they'd much rather do. And all of that works. It's not about when, when your insides are reflected on your outsides truly, you are authentic. You are purely authentic. This, as you see, is who I am. And it's no work for me to do that. It's no it's not an, it's just, it's like when somebody identifies as being fit, working out every day is not an issue for them. It's just something they do, right? If you identify as vegan, like, I, well, I'm mostly vegan, except for fish and chips. So <laughs> mostly vegan, that means that that identity means that I, I make certain choices out of habit. I will not go to a steakhouse, for example, you know. Not, not that I have any condemnation, but there's nothing for me to eat there because I identify as mostly vegan, right? So when I identify as glam, if I'm not being glam, I'm being inauthentic. If I identify as somebody who's building a career in corporate, be the most that you can possibly be. And then you also get to play and say, what else could I be? And if I gave myself permission, what else could I be? And that's the fun part of evolution for humanity. I think I'm going to, on your behalf, quote a dear friend of mine, because I think you've just said, permission granted. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, people ask me what I do. I say, I have a walking permission slip. I, that's, that's how I, <laughs> I see myself. <laughs> Oh, dear. Now, some of your posts, you also like thrift stores. Is that correct? I do, yes. So you're not high maintenance. You just like no. being who you are. Yes. And and for me, the price tag does not equate the glamour. And also because we arrived here with eight suitcases and, you know, and two children under the age of 11. And we had to be, because of the visa requirements, we had to be on only one salary for the first two years. I got really good at being madly glamorous from thrift stores. And now I go thrifting, not, okay, so initially, I will admit it was a finance constraint. I had to balance my budget and I could dress the way I wanted to from a thrift store, whereas I couldn't dress the way I wanted to from high-end stores, right? 
And now that I can afford the high-end stores, I still go thrifting because it ties into my value of recycle, reuse, don't waste. I also think there's a quality thing. If I'm looking for cashmere, for example, I want a cashmere sweater because it makes me feel like a Hollywood starlet, then I'm going to go and find vintage cashmere if I can. And also, I think that there is there's an honoring of the lineage of our of our humanity and the people that have been here before us to to be able to use what they use. Like the glass, yeah, I'm waving it, but nobody can see the glass. And I think these are anchor hocking pressed glass. And after the war, this was the mainstream. After 1949, it was the um, the mainstream version of cut crystal, right? So they gave them out as free gifts and whatnot. Now they're worth a little bit more than they used to be, but I love the weight of them. I love the luxury of them. And in fact, we were discussing earlier, I don't drink out of plastic. So they give me that without having to pay department store prices for really heavy cut glass. So I get, I get the best of both worlds, right? And so Thrifting to me now is is a, is an adventure sport <laughs> and it is a treasure hunt and it is a way to put my money where my mouth is as far as my values about honoring our lineage, don't waste, spend your money where your values are and surround your house with beautiful things even if you can't afford the high-end stuff. It doesn't matter. You can still surround yourself with what makes you happy. Interesting because I too am a thrifter. Uh, 20 years ago, I loved going into thrift stores because I could find these glamorous gowns. I mean, and I still have them. Oh, I, I, don't, I have to come I visit. <laughs> I don't have the place to wear them anymore, but I refuse to part with them because you just never know. Right. But to this day, when I go into a thrift store, I will go look for what I want to look for. And I always go past the glam rack, just yes. in case there's something. Oh, there. yes, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. 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 you can find some stuff that you, you just won't find in a mainstream store anyways. No, and, and I'm so much about individual individuality as well. There's a glorious series called Advanced Style which are all women, mostly women. They were actually, in the second book, they were men too, but they're women who dress according to themselves. They are them, their own art pieces. And most of them come from thrifting, high-end thrifting, some of them, yes, you know, consignment stores as opposed to Goodwill, for example. But when you want to be the most you, sometimes not being what everybody else is, is part of that. I own one pair of jeans. I recently bought them because, <laughs> because in Minnesota, when you are up to your eyelashes in snow, you have to have a pair of trousers that will firstly work under fleecy tights because I'm wearing so many layers, but also that will tuck into boots. And I didn't have anything like that. So I bought a pair of jeans and I put it on my Facebook wall and it was like, like the whole world came to a stop. Everybody <laughs> understood what a big deal this was. But it is that thing that jeans do not allow me to feel the the way I want to feel. So I don't wear them, right? 
And like we're talking about drinking out of plastic doesn't allow you to feel the way you want to feel. Thrifting helps me afford the things that get me to feel the way I want to feel, right? So cashmere and and really high quality stuff that, yes, it's gently worn, but I'm going to love it for the next 20 years because I, you know, it's it's so well made, such high quality and I'm saving it from a landfill somewhere. Fast fashion is has caused as much problems as fast food has. I think we need to slow down and save a, a lot more. Well, you and I will never argue in any store because I actually have a wardrobe of denims. <laughs> I don't call them blue jeans. I call them denims. <laughs> different colors, different styles, different... Look at how excited you get about all of them, right? I mean, you are just so, you're all, you can feel it. And it's you. It's because it's you, right? And when I wear jeans, I'm looking and going, "Eh." I don't have any of that feeling. But now, I mean, the way I'm dressed today, I've got a silk cami on and I've got this coral sweater. And then I have purple palazzo pants on, which are at least two feet wide around the hem. Um, there are there are incongruous garments. They really are. You can't run. Not that I run, but they you couldn't move fast. But I have them in all colors, and I love them because they make me feel like I'm wafting about the house, like a, you know, like Greta Garbo or something. So this is how you know, <laughs> this is how costume talks about you and to you. And when you get all animated and thrilled about your outfit of the day. It doesn't matter what it is or where you got it from. It matters to you how you feel in it and how you'll show up as the person who loves what she's wearing. My one day in the sun as mother of the bride, I had found, I tried on so many clothes, <laughs> and, and I found this outfit with palazzo pants. Ah! And the moment I put them on, it was just like, Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Right. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yes, yes. Everything now my mother of the bride story is that I tried on all the traditional mother of the bride things as well, so many clothes, all in blend in the background colours. Oh. It was just like and I had this heart to heart with my daughter. I said, I know I'm supposed to wear beige. I know I'm supposed to wear quieter blend in colours. And I'm going to be miserable. And she said, oh, dear God, don't do that. It was, okay, thank you. So I wore <laughs> scarlet. <laughs> no, it wasn't scarlet. It was burgundy. It was a deep burgundy long dress. And I ended up having a photo taken, just a quick one, of myself with all the best men in their suits because it reminded me of theater. And so, but my daughter knows that about me. I'm the one she pointed out, you know, when, when she was standing in choir I think she was in eighth grade or something. She was standing in the choir on the bleachers on stage and uh, somebody next to her or in front of her said, who's the woman in the green fur coat? And Amy went, um, that's my mother. <laughs> <laughs> because I just don't blend in. And when I try to, I'm miserable. So the most me I can be is to not do that. And as you say, the moment in the sun, you have to wear what feels right for you not what is expected necessarily and not what is and 
general not what mainstream we we're so done with mainstream the trouble with mainstream is it's going in the wrong direction we need to change it is it going in any direction it to me it seems so random and i don't know <laughs> this is a conversation <laughs> for another whole day but exactly. what i do know is that humanity is moved forward by those who weirdly those who follow their own path you know there was a fabulous advertisement once that apple did it was um here's to the misfits and the outliers and it had all the people who basically you know argued with mainstream and and how what a debt we owe them because they nudge humanity forward even just by opening the conversation about whatever that thing is right so i know that when i show up in my green fur coat or my palazzos or, you know, my oversized earrings, I'm going to start a conversation. Well, somebody will start a conversation with me about that. And invariably I can, I can leave them with something to think about because, because of their response to how I am. And we all get to do that. You know, the, the teachers that make the most impact in the classroom are the ones that teach from themselves they are they're giving parts of themselves the ones that the people that move forward almost any industry are the ones that think for themselves and yes there are times that we have to um, conform and be a collective and I don't think that need diminish the individuality either here here (laughs) I was going to ask about color but I think we've done we've done some of that Let's go to your coaching. You've been coaching, I think you said, for about a ni- nine years? Yes. Yes, I have. And you're not just another mindset coach. No. At first glance, your coaching packages seem a little random, but they aren't, are they? <laughs> no, that you point that out. It is true because it's so, because I have this intrinsic belief that as within, so without. So that is a quote from the Emerald Tablet 3,000 years ago. Somebody scrawled that on a piece of jade. Actually, it's not. it just looks emerald. But it, but as within, so without. This is how acting works. It's how humaning works. Your thoughts become things. But in between that, the becoming is an action, right? So in my coaching, whatever it is you want to achieve, accomplish, be, do, have, we approach it from an inside and outside perspective. Because like we talked about, the coaching is necessary to undo the programming and and previous thought habits you had that made you who you are now, right? And then our outsides need to change because everybody has had the, well, most people have had the experience of deciding never to eat chips again, until they open the pantry door and there are two bags of their favorite chips. And it's just like the, the environment saying, <laughs> yeah, I called you. Right. So this inside outside, the way I, I know it and have experienced it was on stage is that I can learn my words and I can, I can immerse myself in this character I'm playing, but you put me in the costume and you put me in the set and that environment, that little bubble of the stage makes me more of that character. So when I read The Secret, first Law of Attraction book I ever read, 
Um, I was working at Barnes and Noble at the time, and it came out, I think it was 2008. And one of the first chapters was act as if she said, act as if, and if you will act as if you already are who you want to be, you will become it. It's like, oh, I know how to act. So what, what's the as if part? What do I want to be? Well, I was in Minnesota. I hated the weather and I wanted to be down south. I want to be somewhere warmer. And I wanted my husband not to have to have his 18-mile commute that he was doing. And I wanted my son to be happy at school. Those were, And I preferably didn't want to be working retail. But that was kind of a thing. So I started that identity. And the first thing I did was start packing because I had decided that the person I was becoming was moving house. And if I was moving house, I would be collecting boxes of various sizes and I would be decluttering so as to be able to move. So I started doing that. And my life changed. In six months, we were down south. My son was as happy as a clam in his new school. My husband didn't have to commute because he was then now working remote. And I got the house of my dreams. It was actually on my vision board. And it became because I was so focused on imprinting this inside version of me that I, this coached version of me that I was doing, uh, that I was envisioning. I was imprinting it on my current environment. And I was fortunate enough to have a coach on uh, sort of a coach friend who was able to point out where I was thinking like my previous self, when the scarcity kicks in, when the yes, but what ifs kick in. And I got coached around that. So now when I'm coaching, yes, we're going to talk mindset. Yes, we're going to talk about what you think. But I also want to know how your house is going to collaborate with you on this. How are your earrings going to make you feel more fabulous when you go for that job interview? How are you going to set yourself up to not need another New Year's resolution? I can do that with you because your house can help. And yes, you're going to have to do some decluttering, Marie Kondo, when she came out, I was thrilled she started the conversation, but there's a subversive minimalism under her work that is totally in alignment with her. It's not in alignment with me. I like a lot of stuff. I'm a maximalist to the core, but it is about letting go of anything that doesn't, that makes you forget who you are. So you have to remember who you actually are, coach yourself or get coached on deconditioning from that and then start imprinting it on your environment so that your space helps you shape the life you want. I'm getting all animated here. They can't see, but I'm waving. I, I know, I'm just thinking that, oh, I just, this is the one time I really wish that I recorded video as well. Oh my goodness, this is great. Okay, so you've got nesting, living as if, I want to talk about nesting, though, just for a minute. The okay, reason yes, I, did, yes. I did nesting is because the words we use to describe things are so important, right? So people used to always talk about housework and it being a chore and a schlep and all the other things that they don't like. It's been weaponized, it's been used as punishment and all the rest of it. But your house is so important to who you're becoming. So I decided to start calling it nesting because when a pregnant woman starts nesting. Everybody knows what that means. There's a new beingness coming into the house. Hello, that's what we're doing. We're creating a new version of you and we have to welcome them in. And this is the set design part of acting as if, right? So 
nesting is my theatrical and future self-flavored version of looking after your house. And sometimes people will, women will come to me because they hate housework, they hate looking after their houses, and we work on that side. And in the process, they become this new identity that they want, somebody who lives a certain way. And then there are other people who come because they want this identity, they want to be a certain way. And I I guide them to start living as if so that they have that support, so that all of your life, all the realms that you are living, your insides, your outsides, your community, your personal, everything is all pointed in the same direction of what you want instead of going off in random directions that push, end up like this push-me-pull-you thing. And so, yeah, you get all of you pointed in the same direction and you become unstoppable that way. Energy. <laughs> this is just so great. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go a little... Change oh, the subject yeah. a little no bit worries. Two, two phrases um, I've heard you use from time to time, and I'd, I'd love to put you or have you sort of reference them more, mm-hmm. is success as evidence, not an event. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that, should I do that one first? Yes. Okay. In my world, so this is Jackie world, you can run it through your filters and decide if it's not for you. But in my world, there are two kinds of happenings, the ones that happen to us and the ones that happen through us. I see events as things that happen to you. And I see evidence as the event, the, the things that happen through who you are. So, for example, I could look at this podcast as a happy event, and I do. It's like, oh, my God, Agnes found me, and she invited me to be on her podcast. I'm so excited, right? And that happened. But I also know it's evidence of who I am. It's evidence of who I've become over the past few years that allows that invitation to be a natural progression, right? I put on a Facebook post, hey, I am in my power answering questions. If you want me to be on your podcast, call me. And she did. This is, so this is evidence of who I am, right? So what I know from a coaching perspective is that we sometimes get it backwards. Well, our brains will turn things around because they will take evidence of who we are. So the successful things we do, They'll take them as events. Oh, yeah, you were lucky to get that promotion. You were lucky to have, you know, that that thing happen as rather than it's evidence of who you are. And we take the bad things as evidence. We say, oh, the car crash, I I must be a bad driver. Or, you know, um, I dropped something, I'm so clumsy. That we take, we flip them around and we're so fast to allocate the successful and glorious stuff out there. And yet we take the crappy stuff and make it part of who we are. And that's not right. That's the wrong way around. You are glorious. And the the goodness that comes in your life is evidence of who you are. And the bad crap, yeah, that's an event. And you can navigate it with as much grace and gumption as you possibly can and move on. Does that help? Absolutely. I will also tell you that when I saw the word podcast 
in that post, because I have been thinking about this for a while of approaching you about coming on podcast. And then you gave it to me on a silver platter. Evidence! When, when you agreed, I don't think I was a minute and a half before I'm on my phone texting my two daughters saying, oh my God, guess who just agreed to be on podcast? So back at you. This is Yeah, but great. you see now, but that's evidence of who you are because you had to be the kind of person who would make that invitation, risk the failure, risk the rejection, risk the, all the things that happens when we put ourselves out there, right? So you became that. And I am evidence of your becoming just the same way you are evidence of mine. Well, and, and on that note, the reason I chose, I have two quotes for you and we'll move on to the next one. But the reason I chose success as evidence, not an event, is because when I read that, I went, oh, my God, it became an aha moment for me. Oh, good. So and I, I wrote it down. Because I went like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, remember mm-hmm. that. Okay, the next one is something I just love. I believe you were talking about finding space to do what you needed to do. And you talked about smoke and blood. I love this one. <laughs> smoke and blood? Oh, God, smoke yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, part of the thing that I absolutely had to do when I was in previous seasons was be on stage, right? And then I also was a mother. And that was also the season I had, you know. So my small people, all small people go through that stage where two seconds from mommy is away from mommy is an eternity, right? However, I really, really needed time carved out in each day to learn my arias. I was doing um, a lot of uh, opera training and musical theater at the time, and I needed time to either learn words or learn songs or something. So... I would. I bought a, a very cheap egg timer, one of those all-time ones where you turn it, right? And I said to my kids, who at the time were three and five, probably, and I said, I'm, when, when this bell goes off, mommy will come out of the study, right? Until then, unless there is smoke or blood, I do not want to hear from you. And the two of them sat and held, they sat outside the closed door. I set it for three minutes. That was the first time. It was two or three minutes. So I hardly anything. And I closed the door and the two of them sat outside that door and held the timer until it went off. And then I opened it and my daughter went, no smoke or blood from me, timer. I was like, okay. And off we went and we did what I'd promised them. And we kept that going and just played it longer and longer until eventually I was having 15 minutes, which is what I needed to get through an opera, you know, an aria a couple of times and do the things that I needed to do. So it's my tip for every person who wants to do something, but has other priorities as well. It's just like carve out that time. There are ways to do it. And you can tell those that you love that they can be without you for a few minutes. Unless they smoke or blood, you do not need to see them. And that that was just, it's just a phrase. Now my daughter does it with her kids and it's so funny. No smoke or blood, mommy. So I was like, <laughs> but it is this honoring of who you are by carving out time in your day, even when you have small people, even when you have a very busy job. You could just as easily tell the rest of your colleagues that unless there's like smoke or blood, 
are in an absolute disaster. You do not want to see them for the next 15 minutes. And close that office door or whatever it is you need to do and carve out time to be you. You will be better for it. I'm going to send this to my daughter because her biggest dream in life is to go to the bathroom by herself. Yes, and I get that. And I think I think in the well, I have a, a client who's a cat mom and she has the same. She's fostering kittens. She has the same dream. But it is but it is a season and this part of seasonality is so important because especially when we get to a season where most of the most of the advice out there doesn't apply to us. For example, if I'm coaching somebody new, I want to know who they're living with and what demands are being made on their time and their energy. Because if they've got small people, the chances are I need to let them know that they can be flexible in their coaching times because otherwise it's just too much pressure. I also need to let them know that I can't coach them when they're sleep deprived. So I've had many a consult where I've had somebody sit opposite me and say, I really want to be coached. And I say, I understand that. And yes, we can work spaciously, but just know that if you've been up all night with a small person, you you can't coach yourself the following day. You do not have the capacity. Change takes energy. And some seasons are more energy invested than others. We can, we you know, you, you got the parents of a newborn. They are like sleep deprived for at least a year. So this is a season where that's your main concern, getting your sleep, raising this child. And then when you've got toddlers, then it's kind of like trying not to let the toddler kill itself on something. It, 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 these, are the, these are the seasons we go through. And we tend to look at events out there where our friend has suddenly, you know, gone on a trip, for example, or done something spectacular. And we compare it, we think it should be evidence of how badly we're doing, but we don't take into account the season we're in. And I notice that from an entrepreneurial point of view. There are things that the younger generation who are far more technically wizardry than I am are doing with great ease. That is not a reflection of me. That's a season. I, I didn't grow up with all of this. It takes me a while to learn it and I navigate. And I'm more than happy to outsource to somebody who knows what they're doing. So it is these things where you have to, you don't let reality dictate, but you also don't ignore it because it is an influence. And so my reality at the time was that I had to be in theater to maintain my sanity. And I had two small people. So I didn't let them become an either or. I found a way to make it both. And that little phrase with an egg timer, that's been the thing. (laughs) I loved it. Okay, I think I've just proven my point that you are a breath of fresh air with (laughs) philosophy attached. (laughs) Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think mid-age women should think about? I... Mid-age women are at a time now that is that our grandmothers would have sold their souls for. We have technology and freedoms and capacity and availability to the world that is unprecedented. And yes, it's exhausting to have all those choices, right? 
And it can feel somewhat nerve wracking. New, new roles always do. And I just, I'm going to invite you all that are listening to get curious about how good life could be and what that might look like. And for some of you, maybe it's getting a full night's sleep. Yay. Let's do that. Let's, let's see how you can imprint somebody who sleeps really well on your current bedroom. What do you need to move out? What do you need to make more peaceful? Do you need to do a set of laundry? What can you do to make your tomorrow self better rested than you are today? And then we get to play with third careers, third act, right? Your third act is where all the juice happens. You've done the plot twist of the second act and you've done the storytelling of the first act. Your third act is yours to direct and star in. And I think we all need to take center stage of our own damn lives. There you go. <laughs> I have to leave the pregnant pause. <laughs> Before we close, may I ask you a personal question? Sure. You and Malcolm have been married for 40 years. What's that like? <laughs> it's As a child bride. Uh, yeah, I was five. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, he's actually my first boyfriend. He, he came. It's so funny because... My dad, he was the, uh, the fourth person at a dinner party with my dad. My dad heard him play guitar. And my dad said to me, you have to stay home next Saturday night and listen to this man play guitar. And so I was like, uh-huh. I was 17. Uh-huh. So, so this man, he turns out to be like he's a college. He was a college grad, uh, a student at the time. So it wasn't men. So I just said, yes, he was. But he was uh, grown up to my 17 year old eyes but nonetheless I stayed home I sang with this guitar playing wizard and married him the following year and it uh it was there's there's a whole lot of different parts to this but the the thing that has kept us together most is that we are we have always liked who the other person turned into So I talked about how I thought I'd give up theater, right? And part of what held me back from doing theater when we first got married was that I thought he didn't, he wouldn't love that version of me. But then I didn't love that version of me, the version that didn't do theater. So I had to do it. And he, he started coming to rehearsals first. And then one day somebody in the orchestra couldn't play. And so he stepped into the orchestra and he was in the orchestra after that forever. Every musical I did, my husband played in the orchestra and and we when we decided to come here we had no outside influences because it was just the four of us it was the two kids and Malcolm and myself and we navigated it as a team and that was the decision it's like we are a team so we have been we talk to each other I think that's the overriding thing and we we are very very blessed and we've worked very very hard to stay married. It's my, I come from a broken, broken family. I come from two parents who were previously married and my husband comes from uh, a marriage that lasted 60 years. So, you know, we had both sides and we just worked on what worked for us. And it's, uh, it's weird because it sounds so grown up to say I've been married 40 years and I do not feel that different to who I was when I first had to stay home and sing with this man who could play the guitar and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a blessing. It's something 
I know most people are amazed when it happens and it's just been so organic for us that we have to kind of stop to think about how, how it worked and how did that happen? We were both lucky and we worked. So I wanted to ask just because we don't see a lot of him on your Facebook page, No, but your love for him always comes through. I am who I am now because of his adoration of me. It's like he saw me. I mean, look, he married a 17-year-old girl who was into opera. I was just so weird at school, right? And he saw past the weirdness. And and maybe because of the weirdness, I don't know. Um, it was it was just, it's so, he has been my groundingness and has allowed me to be everything I've ever wanted to be all the time, no matter what. Um, nothing surprises him about me. If I suddenly decide to, like when I cut my hair, when I start, you know, I, I said to him, what if I became a witch one day? And he said, became, then you're already magical. It's fine. <laughs> so like, and if I go off and do these things, I've, I, you know, I've started a blog. Oh, well, of course you write. Of course you'd start a blog, right? I started a, I started a YouTube channel. Well, you need a stage. Good thing, right? He's been my support every single step of the way. And I've done the same for him. It was my job to raise the children while he grew his career. We agreed on that from the beginning. And so that kind of distribution of work looks very unfeminist, but it was actually the most feminist thing ever because I am damn good at running a house and then I could be on stage. And he just did what he did to find it all. So it worked really well. And each time, everything we've been through, this whole change of countries, we've moved eight times in 10 years, Everything is as a team. And yeah, he's he's my rock and I adore him. And he's damn lucky to have me too. There's that part. <laughs> There's that part too. <laughs> uh, Jacqueline, okay, I find you intriguing. Thank so you. approachable. You are being your own amazing self, or as you say, the leading lady of your own damn life. And not only are you doing what many women wish they could do, you're helping other women live their way to their future selves. Mm -hmm. Where on the World Wide Web can people find you? Well, JacquelineGates.com is my... Isn't there a dash in there? Yes, there's a dash. dash. Sorry, thank you. Uh, Actually, I think I have both URLs. But anyway, Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E. Gates, as in Bill Gates, no relation, unfortunately. JacquelineGates.com is my my virtual home, but I'm not there much. What there is there, though, is my contact form. You'll see it says, I think it says contact or it says want more, keep in touch, something like that. There's a form there. You can get my backstage letters, which are basically noodlings on stuff that I don't really want to share on Facebook. And then there's also as seen on Facebook, because I know a lot of people don't want to be on Facebook. So I put what happens on my wall via email, because I am mostly for my sins on the, at the moment on Facebook. That is changing, but that's where most of my conversations, most of my ahas, that's my go-to sharing mechanism at the moment. And if you sign up for the backstage letters, you'll see how that's morphing this year, because I have decided that Facebook does not align that much with my values like it used to. And I really want to create a gathering space that is away from social media because I think 
I think, I know that if we can turn down the volume of outside voices, we can hear ourselves clearer. And to that end, it doesn't make sense for me to invite you all over to a place that's as busy as a marketplace, right? I mean, it is crazy noisy over in Facebook. It is, a, it is a slippery slope to comparisons and just ending up in conversations you don't want to be in. I don't feel right about inviting people to have more of that. So I'm creating a space where there's less of that. And so if you want to stay in my world, that's where I am at the moment. It is changing and you can keep in touch via email. So yes, there you go. Excellent. And listeners, I really do recommend you visit the website. And if you want to experience Jacqueline's wisdom firsthand, I, I will put a link to the Facebook page in the show notes. Please do. But as Jacqueline has said, uh, yeah, it says want, want more, I believe, is the tab on your website. Yes, thank you. I've been quite a bit the last this week. <laughs> it changes so often. <laughs> if you have comments on today's show on Jacqueline's wisdom, leave them where you're listening or at twoboomerwomen.com forward slash join dash the dash conversation. Share this episode with any women you know who need to be reminded their future selves are waiting in the wings. Leave stars, they help us grow. And click the subscribe or follow button too, so you'll be notified whenever another great guest is featured on podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on podcast or know someone who would, there's an application form at the website too. Jacqueline Gates, thank you so much for being my guest on podcast this week, for sharing your wisdom so generously. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been such fun, such fun. And I do love being in the spotlight. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I turned that light off because it, I just looked bleached out. <laughs> Have a great rest of the week. Thank you, honey.